Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and then departed him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Jesus says, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you saw in your infinite wisdom thousands of years ago the need for us to have your words written down and preserved so that we could see the example of Jesus. We could read and hear his teaching and that we could receive the truth of everything that he spoke. And so, Lord, we don't take these words lightly today. These are not just stories, and this is not just ink on a page. These words are truth, and they are life. And we open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to hear these words, to receive them. And like you said, to not just be hearers, but doers of the word. Lord, help us walk in the truth of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We've been talking for a couple of weeks now about this idea of living life on mission, being sure that everything we do is on mission. And each week I've given you kind of a, a buzzword in, the, in, in mission theory about how to understand mission, and it applies in all kinds of different ways. It applies in businesses and mission statements. It applies in your own personal life, and it applies in the church as well. And each week I've given you those words. The first week we talked about mission drift, how every organization uh, faces the pressures from culture and society around them, and, and it's easy to drift off of mission. It's easy to get off course from the original purpose of the, of the original mission. And then last week, we talked about mission disconnect, and we talked about when our mission isn't reflected in our behavior, or when the mission isn't shared by everyone in the group, that's called mission disconnect. And today, I want to give you another one of those buzzwords, and today I want to talk about mission alignment. Mission alignment. Mission alignment is all about bringing things down to a personal level. Mission alignment is all about you 
and me and our relationship to the group, to the broader organization. In this case, we're talking about our relationship to the body of Christ, our relationship to the mission of God. And mission alignment happens when the church's alignment is aligned with God's mission, and then when the members of the church, their mission is aligned with the church's mission. Remember, God's mission, we've talked about it every week so far, God's mission is to change the world. We looked at Revelation 21 where God says that he is going to dwell among his people and the the people will will have him as their God and he will rule among the people and there will be no more death or dying or pain or sickness or sin. And he's going to completely transform the, the world he created as we know it and it's going to be restored to what he originally intended for creation to be. And so God's mission is to change the world. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus lived this life. That's why his life and message were all about the Father sending him to change the world through restoration, renewal, and eventually resurrection. And the church's mission is to change the world. We looked at that last week. God's mission is to change the world. The church's mission should be the same as God's mission, right? And the church's mission then is to change the world. And we looked at the scripture and we saw that just after Jesus was resurrected and before he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, what did he do? He got his disciples together and he commissioned them. He sent the church into the world to change the world by reaching the lost, by preaching the gospel, and teaching people how to be followers of Jesus. That's our mission as the church, is to reach, to preach, and to teach. And we do that. When we do those things effectively in a biblical way, we can change the world. But mission alignment doesn't happen in my personal life or in your personal life until we as individuals get on board in our personal lives. Our life mission has to be in alignment with God's mission. Let me put it this way. God created the world in Genesis chapter 1 with specific goals and specific purposes. He created mankind, Adam and Eve, to join him in accomplishing those goals and fulfilling that purpose. And he tasked the first man and the first woman with expanding his glory and extending his kingdom and his reign throughout creation by ruling and reigning over the thing that God had created. He created them to live a life of mission that was all about living with God, and then ruling over what he had created with God. But sin came in and messed all of that up. It brought death into the world. It brought suffering into the world. It caused division between the man and the woman. It caused division between people and God. It brought sickness, and mankind lost the authority and lost the royal commission from God to expand his glory and extend his reign into the earth. But Jesus came, he died on a cross to save us of our sins, and when he is resurrected, what does he tell his disciples in Matthew 28? He says, all authority has been given unto me. Adam lost that authority. Jesus says, though, after his resurrection, all authority has been given unto me, and then he sends his disciples out to do what? to expand his glory and extend his kingdom on the earth. The exact same commission that Adam received in Genesis. See how that works? God, through Christ, restores the mission of mankind back to mankind. 
He restores the original purpose of humanity back to us through the victory of the cross and resurrection. But what does that mean for you and for me? It means that you and I, we have a decision to make as believers. Is our Christianity, if you want to call it that, all about ensuring my ticket out of hell and making sure that my life is blessed and my, my life is what I want it to be? Is that what my Christianity is about? Or is my kind of Christianity the biblical kind of Christianity that's about me becoming a citizen of a new kingdom and my life's mission as a follower of Jesus is to spend and be spent for the sake of expanding God's glory and extending that kingdom until the reaches of that kingdom go into every aspect of creation and all the earth, everyone in the earth knows Jesus and has the opportunity to encounter him. And you see the difference there, right? One version of, quote, Christianity is about me. The other version of Christianity, the real thing, is about his kingdom. And it's about me being a part of his kingdom and then my life mission being to expand and extend his kingdom. That's what it's really all about. That's what you signed up for when you came to an altar. That's what you signed up for when you asked Jesus for forgiveness. It wasn't just a I'm going to go to heaven one day thing. That's great, and I can't wait to get there. But there's a job to do before you get there. Hello? There's a job to do, and you signed up for that when you became a Christian. One version is all about me. What can I get from God? What can God do for me? What can God bail me out of? What do I need to do to save my own skin? And part of that is true. God does care about you. He does want to bless you, but that that is the extent of your relationship with Christ. If that's the extent of your faith, that is a very self-centered and incomplete Christianity. But the other version is about Christ, who has chosen us, who has forgiven us, who has cleansed us for his use, his kingdom, doing everything we can to be used by Christ and to be sure that Christ is lifted up, that Christ is glorified, and that the kingdom of Christ is built, and that his word, uh, this world marks by sin uh, finds hope and healing and resurrection through Christ and his love. That is the call of Jesus. That is kingdom living. That is whoever loses their life will find it of Christianity. And when we get there, that's when we find that our life has become, come into mission alignment with the mission of God. So many church attenders, churches, notice I didn't say Christians, church attenders end up frustrated with church, disillusioned with God, and disappointed in themselves because we haven't found the peace and contentment yet in our consumeristic, what-can-church-do-for-me kind of religion. True peace is only found, true life is only found, true healing is only found when our life's mission goes back to the original purpose, goes back into alignment with God's mission to change the world, to expand God's glory, to extend his kingdom. And this is the key to ch church growth. This is the key to community transformation. This is the key to biblical prosperity. This is the solution to a nation that's moving further and further away from God. This is the answer to a church grasping for influence in society. On a grassroots level, ensuring that every individual believer has totally sold out to the mission of God. Knowing that when his mission is to change the world, our personal mission is to change the world. The church is at its strongest when everyone in the church 
is working to accomplish the same mission. And the mission of the church is to change the world. God's mission is to change the world. The question is, is your mission to change the world? Or are you satisfied with the status quo of the world around you? During Jesus' teaching ministry, he was approached by an expert in religious law. And this young ruler, this, excuse me, this young lawyer came to Jesus and asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Listen to that question. What's he asking? He's asking about mission. He's asking, what's the mission? What's the point? What do I need to do? What do I need to do to be in alignment with everything that you're teaching and preaching? What do I need to do to accomplish and need to accomplish in order to really be a part of your kingdom? What mission do I need to be working toward in order to inherit the promises that you have for me? And see, this man, he comes and he's checking his alignment. He's making sure, okay, I hear this stuff. I hear what you're saying. It's maybe different than anything I've ever heard before, even though I've studied religious law and even though I've studied theology and I know the scriptures, there's a little bit different spin on things that Jesus is doing. And he's saying, okay, Jesus, what is, let's boil this all down. What's the bottom line? What do I need to do? What do I have to fulfill in order to, to live for what you stand for? And he asked Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns it around on him, and he asks a question. He answers a question with a question. And he says, you're trained in the Scripture. He says, you've read your Bible. He says, you know what the Bible says. You know what the Old Testament law. You've been trained by rabbis and lawyers and, and, and scribes. You know what it is. What do the Scriptures say? The man goes back into his legal and his theological training, and he, he knows that all of the Old Testament laws, all of the Old Testament teachings can be boiled down to two main commandments, to love God with everything that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the laws that stand out among all the other laws. Jesus would say at one point, he would say, all the other laws of the, of the prophets and, and, and the Old Testament, they hang on these two commandments. And this, this lawyer, this religious scholar, he knows this. He knows this already. He knows that Jesus is a big proponent of love. He knows that Jesus preaches love. And so he says to Jesus, you know what, Jesus, if I had to summarize the scriptures and, and boil them down to the bottom line, I would say love your neighbor, love God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes. Ding, 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 ding. Hey, you got it. You, the right answer. That's, that's it. That is what I stand for. That's what I'm preaching. That's what I'm talking about. Exactly right, sir. If you do that, go your own way and do that. Love God. Love your neighbor. You'll live. You'll, you'll find eternal life that way. But this lawyer is a good lawyer. He's good at his job. And he's been trained to think like a lawyer. And a good lawyer is trained to look, take a critical look, at all contracts and all agreements. And what is that lawyer looking for in every contract and every agreement? Loopholes. Every good lawyer is going to be able to find the loopholes. And it depends on if that lawyer is working for you or not, if that's a good thing. But he's a good lawyer. And he says, okay, I'm reading the law, I'm reading the scriptures, I'm reading this, and I know that all the law boils down to this, these two things, and I, I know what it means to love, and I know that there's a God. And he says, but there's one word in this whole thing that we need to define. We need to narrow down exactly what does the, what does the scripture mean when it says neighbor. So he asked Jesus, he says, okay, 
Who is my neighbor? What's he doing there? Define neighbor for me, Jesus. The thrust of this question implies that the lawyer is wanting to make sure that he doesn't do any less than loving his neighbor, but also that he doesn't do any more loving than he has to. So hopefully he's thinking, I can sort people into two categories. Either they're my neighbor or they're not my neighbor, and then I can shrink the number of people that I have to love. That's what he's doing. You understand that, right? He's saying, I need to categorize people, and I need to make sure that I'm not, there's, there's only so much of me, Jesus, and there's only so much love to give, and so let's make sure that we narrow this category of neighbor down to as small a group as possible so that I can be as effective as possible in loving my neighbor. That's what he's trying to do. And I love what Jesus does here because Jesus isn't a lawyer, and Jesus doesn't deal with legal jargon and lawyer speak and he doesn't deal in loopholes and contract language. How does Jesus teach? He teaches with stories. And so this guy, he's looking for a loophole, and he's looking for a way to get around some things and cut corners in his religious life, and Jesus just tells a story. And he tells the story that has now influenced human civilization for over 2,000 years. It's a story that we call the Good Samaritan. Quick summary of the story is this. Remember, Jesus is telling the story to a Jewish man who is very trained in Jewish law. He is steeped in Jewish tradition. And there's probably an audience there because it says while he was teaching, this man came up. So there's an audience of other Jewish men and his disciples that are listening, right? And he's telling the story to this audience of very Jewish people steeped in Jewish tradition. And he says a man was traveling down the road toward Jerusalem, and he's, uh, he, he falls among robbers. He's beaten. They strip him. They take everything he has, and they leave him for dead on the side of the road. And Jesus says a few minutes later, one of the priests walks by. The priest is on his way down to the temple to, to fulfill his ministry. He's, the priest represents someone who is a mediator between God and man. The priest represents someone who, who represents forgiveness, who represents God's grace and God's mercy. He's the one that would take the sacrifice before the presence of God, and he would shed the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice, in order to find forgiveness and cleansing. And so the priest represents grace. The priest represents church people. The priest represents the church. And what does he say? The priest, seeing the man on the, on the side of the road almost dead, for fear of wanting to be inconvenienced, for fear of wanting to be late to church, for fear of being deemed ceremonial and clean, what does he do? He just walks to the other side of the road and walks by and leaves the man for dead. Then Jesus says a few minutes later, a Levite walks by. Now, who are the Levites? The Levites are a specific tribe in Israel. And the Levites were charged in the Old Testament with being in charge of the worship that takes place in the temple. The Levites were the, were the worship leaders. They were the choir singers. They were, they were the upstanding members of society who were at church every Sunday, making sure that everything was taken care of and that the church was clean and ready for people to come in and worship. They were the people that were dedicated to the Lord. They were there. And the Levite, he represents dedicated, believing people. And the Levite, he goes and he sees the man on the side of the road, uh, half dead. And what does the Levite do for fear of being inconvenienced, for fear of being late to his job at the church, for fear of being deemed ceremonially unclean? What does he do? He walks to the other side of the road and leaves the man for dead. Then Jesus says a few minutes later, now listen, how many of you have heard this story before? You, you grew up, you know this story. Okay, I want you to remember, these Jewish people that are hearing the story, they don't know the end of the story. All right? We know the end. We, we hear about Good Samaritans. So I want you to take that 
off for a minute and just imagine you have never heard this story before. Jesus says, then a Samaritan walks down the road. Now, if you don't know the end of the story and you're a Jewish person, this is a big deal. There was a large racial cultural divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated each other. Samaritans were seen as people who were irreligious, irreverent, immoral. They were just seen as the scum of the earth. They were, they were not even worth talking about. When you see Jesus running into Samaritans other places, he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well, and the disciples are astonished that he would talk to a woman, and at that, a Samaritan woman, that he would even have a relationship with her and talk with her. They, would, they wouldn't even speak to one another crossing the road together. They just saw them. If you were going to put this in modern-day American language and you were going to tell this story, you wouldn't call the guy a Samaritan. You'd call him a member of ISIS. That, that's, that's the hate. That's the divide that was between these people if you were telling this story. So when Jesus says the priest went by and walked by, well, at least the priest didn't do anything to hurt him more. The Levite went by and, 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 and left him for dead. Well, at least the Levite didn't, didn't rob him anymore or beat him anymore. They hear Jesus say, now the Samaritan's coming, and every Jewish mind goes to, this Samaritan's going to come beat the guy again. He's going to go see if there's any more money left on him. He's going to come finish the job. that the ro- He might have been one of the robbers who came back to the scene of the crime. That's what they're thinking because that's how they're trained mentally to think of Samaritans. There's no possible way that the happy ending could be that the Samaritan comes and helps the guy. There's no way in the Jewish mind. That's why this story is genius. That's why Jesus is so cool, because Jesus is saying, I'm going to flip everything that you thought was right about the world around. And he says, a Samaritan comes, and the Samaritan, what, has compassion on him. And he says he goes and he binds up his wounds, and he, he pours oil and wine on his wounds, and, and that's the, the medicine that they had at the time. And he puts him on his own horse or his own camel and carries him to an inn, and he stays overnight with him, and he nurses him. And he tells the innkeeper, he says, hey, here's a couple of bucks. He says, anything he needs, you provide it for him, and if it costs more than that, I'll pay you back on my way home. And he leaves him there, and he, he provides for the man. He, he, he nurses him back to health. He gives money so that this man can be provided for and taken care of, maybe even more than he lost in the first place. And he says, I'll pay whatever it costs. He helps this man out. And Jesus asks the question after he finishes the story, which one of these men was the neighbor to the victim? Which one of these men was a neighbor? Because that's, that's why he's telling the story, right? The guy says, who's my neighbor? And he says, he tells the story, and he says, now which one's the neighbor? The man says, and now this is a Jewish guy. He doesn't like Samaritans, and he's looking for loopholes. He's looking for any way to say that that priest and the Levite were a better neighbor, but you can't do it in this story. He says, well... I guess if I have to answer the question, the guy who was the neighbor was the Samaritan. He was the neighbor. And if Samaritans in the Jewish mind, the scum of the earth, if they can be my neighbor, then that must mean that anyone and everyone is my neighbor. It's interesting in the original language, the word neighbor, we use that word and we usually mean the person who lives in the house next door or across the street. And that's how we talk about neighbors, right? 
But in the original language, it's not talking about where the person resides. The word neighbor at its most basic meaning is near. So when the lawyer asks, who's my neighbor, Jesus gives us, this, Jesus' story gives us the answer. The neighbor isn't a certain type of person, or it isn't dependent on where the person lives. A neighbor is whoever you see, whoever's near you, whoever your eyeballs behold, that person is your neighbor. Neighbor now is not a person, but it's an opportunity. Your neighbor is whoever happens to be near you at the time. Who is your neighbor? Whoever you're looking at. Whatever human being you behold with your eyes, whatever person crosses your path, they are your neighbor. Once you've seen them, once you've been near them, once you've encountered them, you are now responsible to them, and they have become your neighbor. So the guy with the cardboard sign on the street corner, guess what? You saw him. He's your neighbor. The woman who you saw on the news that had a religious head covering, guess what? You saw her. She's your neighbor. The guy you saw stumbling out of the bar, guess what? You saw him. He's your neighbor. The girl sitting by herself in the school cafeteria, guess what? You noticed her. She's your neighbor. That boy who never comes to school wearing clean clothes, you saw him and you smelled him. He's your neighbor. That guy driving the sports car who cuts you off in traffic. You saw him. He's your neighbor. That customer that yelled at you and complained to your manager. Sorry. She's your neighbor. And once they become your neighbor, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're responsible now. You have a duty because how, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor, <laughs> right? That's what Jesus said. I didn't say this, all right? It's in me. That means the person that you really are irritated by, you got to love them. I know it hurts to say it, and I know it's hard. But your Bible says, do you want eternal life? Do you want to be on mission? Do you want to be part of the kingdom? Guess what? You're responsible, and it's your choice. Jesus looks at this lawyer, and he says, if the Samaritan who doesn't have the same church background as you, who doesn't have the same legal expertise as you, who doesn't have the same instruction on righteousness as you, if this idolatrous, sinful, immoral Samaritan still found a way to show kindness to a neighbor, then why can't you and I? Jesus I want to make sure my life's mission is aligned with your mission. I want to make sure that I'm changing the world and doing my part as a member of the kingdom to bring the kingdom to the world and, and bring restoration and renewal and resurrection to the world around me. How do I do that? And Jesus says, love God and love whoever you see. Love your neighbor. Yeah, but, but can't we clarify? Can't we narrow down 
who our neighbor is because, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day and I've got a job to do and I've got things that have to get done. Can't we just kind of slim down the category of who qualifies as neighbor? And Jesus says, no. No. Because every human being that walks the face of this planet has been created in the image of almighty and all-powerful God. And they, be, they are beloved by him. And if our life's mission has to be in alignment with his mission, then we have to look at them the way he looks at them. As image bearers of God. Whoever you see is your neighbor. So my life mission is to love God and love everyone, even bad people, even people I don't like, even people who don't deserve it. Yes. That's what it means to be a Christian. Because I didn't create you just to love people who are easy to love. I didn't create you with a life mission to just love likable people. Because my mission is to change the world. And if you only love the people who are like you, if you only love the people who think like you, who look like you, who smell like you, who live like you, then you will never change the world. You will continue to live in the same status, in the same situation for your entire life. You will never see change. I didn't create you to live static. I didn't create you to uphold the status quo. I created you. I redeemed you. I set you free from your sin. I brought change in your life so that you could bring change in someone else's life. And one person at a time, one neighbor at a time, you are called to change the world. The preacher left the poor guy for dead on the side of the road. The worship leader left the poor guy for dead on the side of the road. But the irreligious, irreverent, immoral Samaritan loved the poor guy. He saw that he had fallen victim to an evil world full of sin. And he said, I can do my part to at least change this man's world today. Someone, because someone showed love where others had been at best indifferent and at worst uncaring, this man's life was changed. His life was saved. Our life mission, your life mission, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a member of this church, your life mission should be, I'm asking you to make it to be, to change the world one neighbor at a time. Change the world one neighbor at a time. You say, I can't do a whole lot, and I'm just, we live in Belleville, Seth. Come on, we can't change the world. You can change this world. We can bring transformation to this community. We can be more than just the church that people drive by on their commute from Havana to Danville. We can be more than that. We can change this world. We can change this community. Why, why are we starting groups to reach out to addicts? Because... I don't want people to be stuck in addiction. Do you? Why are we starting groups to help people in poverty? Because if they get out of poverty, it only helps the whole community. Why wouldn't we? Why do we feed kids on Wednesday nights? Because if my kid was hungry, I'd hope someone would feed them, feed her. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we do outreach events? Why, why do we spend this money? Why do we do that? Why do we have church every Sunday? Be to give people an opportunity for their life to be changed. Change the world one neighbor at a time, and every neighbor is an opportunity. Every person you come across, every person you see with your eyes is your neighbor, and they are an opportunity, an opportunity for you to do something that will just make the kingdom a little bit bigger and expand God's glory a little bit more. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning?
I've been praying about how to end this series and end this sermon.